I want to introduce you to a word, protoevangelium. Now, that's the word that you write down, protoevangelium. And that's what uh, I would like to visit about this evening. This, uh, I, I feel like tonight's going to be a little bit of a um, college lecture rather than uh, anything else. So we, uh, but uh, that's, that's the word of the night, is protoevangelium. And the word protoevangelium, of course, you, you probably recognize it sounds familiar to your ears, that evangelium part, right? Because you think of evangelizing. You think the, uh, of the evangelical message, and that's exactly what it is, is, uh, is that evangelical message. It's that message, the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of the salvation that we have in him. And the, uh, the proto part, you probably would recognize if I said something like prototype. In other words, the first of its type, right? And so if you put those two together, proto and evangelium, you have the, the first message of the good news. The very first message of the good news of salvation. That good news that we are going to be saved. And where do we find the protoevangelium is none other than Genesis chapter 3. Now we might think, well, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's odd that it would go back that far, but that's exactly where we find the very first message of the salvation that is coming from God. Now as we think about the protoevangelium, as we think about this first message of salvation, any time that we do a Bible study, any time that we study the Word of God, it's always important to understand things in context, uh, to have the context. And that's true not just of the Bible, it's also true of other subjects as well, right? And, uh, and so we want to be sure to understand the context of this message, the context of the protoevangelium. And the context is here in the very first part of Genesis, where at the very beginning, in fact, it says, in the beginning, God created. And so we start with this, this thought process of God creating everything. And as we move forward to look at the Protoevangelium, as we move forward to, to better understand this very initial, very first message of the good news of salvation, as we come to understand that, we're going to kind of think about it in, in three parts, if you will. We're going to think about just how perfect creation was. We're going to think about the perfection of God's creation. And then as we move forward, we're going to understand the pervasiveness of sin and how that sin, when it entered in, just changed the story. And then after that, we're going to be able to, to understand how that this promise of salvation comes in and, uh, and, and makes us uh, have such hope. And so there's your roadmap right there. That's how we're going to look at it. And if, if we said nothing else than that tonight, if you were to go home and think about those things, the perfection of creation and the pervasiveness of sin and the promise of salvation, if you were to think about those three things, what a blessing it would be to you just to understand that. And I know that, uh, that you sitting here tonight, you already understand that. You already understand how that it has come in. And so what we're hoping to do this evening is to fill in a few of the details that led up to the protoevangelium, this first message of the salvation uh, that, that God gives unto us. Now again, we start back in, the, in Genesis chapter 1 and we see in the beginning, God created. And we see where God, through six days, created everything that, that was created. Now we have other scriptures that, that tell us that everything was created by Him and they were created for Him as well. And so uh, as we think about things being created by God and we think about how that God created light. And any time that I talk about the creation, I always uh, like to point out because it's, to me it's, it's, the, it's one of the funner little aspects of, of creation and that is God created light on day one but it wasn't until a few days later that he created the sun. And so God created light before he created the sun, right? And so that tells us right there 
that we are not dependent upon the sun for light. Now, it may be true, and it is true, that as this world goes around, right? And, uh, and you know, the, the rotation of the earth really makes my day. Okay, thank you. You're, you're getting to catch on there. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we know that as the earth rotates, that, that the sun gives us that light. But we are not dependent upon the sun for light because God created light before He created the sun. And so light comes from God. That's an important concept, isn't it, uh, to, to understand spiritual things as we go throughout the Scriptures. It's not dependent upon, uh, upon nature or anything natural, this light that we have, whether it be, be the, the light that God created from the very beginning, or the spiritual light is not dependent upon anything natural. It's something that is supernatural and that comes from God. But then God goes along and, you know, he creates uh, the, the dry land and he creates the, the birds and he creates the cows and he creates the fish and he creates all these other kind of animals and these trees and flowers and all these wonderful things that, that we know and we understand and some things we're still yet discovering. God uh, created all of them. And, and I, I really enjoy seeing... Um, shows and, and pictures about what they discover in the depths of the ocean, right? And, and these amazing, weird creatures, right? And, and we know just, and, and, and uh, nothing about our wonderful children here, but we know that there's some weird creatures that come up on land too, right? <laughs> but uh, there's some weird creatures that go uh, underneath uh, in, down in the ocean as well. And I mean to tell you, God's got a vivid imagination, doesn't he? God is extremely creative. Things that, that we could never even think about, God has, has created them. And it's just astounding, all of the creation that God has made. And, and we've, we keep discovering all of these various things, you know, and it, it's, uh, it just never ceases to amaze me. And then he comes to day six, and he creates what really is literally his crowning achievement, if you will, and that is, he comes and he creates mankind. And you and I understand how that, uh, that God created man. In fact, if we read uh, there in Genesis chapter 1, uh, in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I want you to remember that, put a, put a pen in that, and remember how that uh, God has created man, and he created man in his image, in his likeness. And you've heard that before. That's uh, something that's not uh, new to you. But God created uh, man to be in his image and in his likeness. Uh, so, God, uh, so God created man in his image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them and God blesses them, says, "Go forth and multiply." And uh, and we see uh, that uh, Sister Catherine and Brother Jamie take that literally, and I'm glad that they do uh, to go forth and multiply. Right? And uh, the thing about multiplication is, is that it, uh, it it's much, it, you get a lot more by multiplying than you do by adding. Right? And so we just expect you to keep getting more and more. So we'll, you'll have this whole section filled up by the time I come back again, right? So, uh, uh, and you're going to have to have some triplets in order for that to happen, by the way. So, so uh, God creates all of these wonderful things. And we see here in everything that God has created, and you think about all of the planetary bodies, all of the various stars that are out there. And you think about the amazing things, and I've mentioned how that God has an, an amazing imagination for creating things that are under the, uh, in the water, you know, uh, down in the ocean. But also, we, we get some pictures back from, from outer space, right? And these pictures that come back from outer space, they're just amazing with, with all of the, the color and all of the, and just how God has created all of that and brought it all together. And we don't even understand the half of it. It's like when the Queen of Sheba went to see King Solomon and saw him in all of his glory. She saw him in all of his glory. And if we could, if we could see all of the glory of, of what God has created, we, like the Queen of Sheba, would say the half has not been told, right? The half has not been told because we just don't even know what else is out there. 
We're waiting on Star Trek to become a reality, right? The final frontier, going out and seeing all these amazing things. Well, uh, uh, the, the perfection of God's creation is without doubt. And, and part, remember that part of God's creation was the creation of mankind. And so when we're saying, uh, when we're talking about the perfection of creation, we are also talking about mankind. We're talking about humanity and how that when God created humanity, he created them perfectly. He created humanity. What did we read? After his image, right? Uh, according to his own likeness. He, uh, we, were, we were made just like, uh, to, to, to be just like God. Right. And as I come here, you know, I've, uh, uh, as we've already alluded to, been coming here for many, many years, half my life. And during the course of half my life, uh, your children have grown up and had children. Right. And so I've seen that back in San Antonio as well, where I have been pastor. Uh, I, I haven't been pastor there for as long as I've been coming here, uh, and, which is amazing. And so uh, but I, I see it in San Antonio as well. All of these kids that I used to, to, to pick them up and swing them, you know, and, and, uh, and hold them upside down and do all these things uh, with them and have fun with them, they're now having children, right? And I'm picking up their children and swinging them and holding them upside down and having fun with them and things. And so uh, things just keep, uh, keep going on and on. And now I don't have any idea where I was going with that. I don't, I don't know why I brought that up at all. But... Mankind, uh, God created mankind. He created them perfect. He, he created them to be, oh, that's where I was going with it, to be made in his likeness. So now I can see uh, the, your grandchildren, right? And I can see that they're in the likeness of their parents. And we were in the likeness of our parent as well, our parent being God. And God had this perf perfect creation going. I mean, there was, there was no worries. There was no problems. We didn't have to be concerned about Old things like fire ants. Now, y'all don't know about fire ants up here, do you? Uh, and and uh, Sister Peggy's coming to Texas. I'm going to introduce her to fire ants. So, uh, and she's hoping that I won't introduce her by putting her foot in them. But you don't have to, we wouldn't have had to worry about fire ants. We wouldn't have had to worry about scorpions. Y'all don't have scorpions up here either. I'm going to make you look real forward, Sister Peggy, to coming to Texas. You know, what we have up there. You know, the, and... And we wouldn't have to be concerned about all of these problems. We wouldn't also wouldn't have to be concerned about cancer. We, we, we didn't have to be concerned about any of these other diseases that, that, uh, that ravage us, right? We didn't have to be concerned about that. Why? Because God's creation was absolutely perfect. After God, you know, every day, at the end of the day, God created things, he would say, it is good. It is good. It is good. You know, these things were all good that God created and then when he got through creating, he rested on that Sabbath day. Remember, on that seventh day, that Sabbath day, God rested. And the, and the scripture tells us here, the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1 says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right? And so here he is at the end of his creation, at the end of the sixth day. He looks back at what he has done in the last week. And he looks back and he says, hey, that was very good. And who are we to argue with God? He, uh, after all, is, uh, is omniscient. That is, he knows everything. And, and uh, he set the standard. And so he says it is very good. And we see the perfection of God's creation. Now, I'll tell you a little tidbit about God's creation. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not going to argue that something good came out of sin. I would never do that. But let me tell you about... Uh, there is one thing that God brought forth that, that we have now after sin that we would not have had had there not been sin. Do you realize that God created, when God created everything, He created us to eat only vegetables? I know it's sad to think about that, isn't it? I, it breaks my heart every time I think about how the thing, but thankfully, you know, uh, thankfully now we can eat pizza, Brother Greenfield, with with meat on it, right? You, you can bring in the pepperoni and the Italian sausage and we can have a, a, a feast, you know, with, with that. And so again, I'm not going to say anything good came out of sin, but th there is at least that, that we can eat meat now because we are created to be vegetarians. And do you know that even lions 
Even lions were created to eat leaves, not of them. It's amazing. And, and that's what the Scripture says. Now, I'm not going to go but it's, show you, but it's right there. And, and you can use that as your homework. You see, you can go see. Uh, it's, right, it's in Genesis. It's within the first three chapters. I'll tell you that of Genesis. And you can go and read, for, uh, read about it yourself. That that's, that's exactly right. And so God's creation was absolutely perfect. So what could go wrong? He created man uh, in his own image, after his own likeness. And he, he, he scooped up Adam and Eve and he had this perfect place for them called Eden, right? And there was a garden east in Eden and, and, and he put them in the garden of Eden and, and they, uh, they were living in this perfect place. Now, I've been doing this for years. Half my life I've been doing this and I keep waiting on one of these wonderful deacons to pour this water before me before I got up here. I used to shake when I did that when I first came up here. Now, uh, I know y'all, so I don't shake anymore. <laughs> this is going to sound real weird on the internet, isn't it, Brother Tom, when you post this? You may have to edit this a little bit before you put it out there. <laughs> so here we have this perfect creation, and, and they are living in this perfect environment. And, and God has, has given them everything that they, they needed. And God said, you can eat anything out of of any of the trees you want to except this one tree, right? This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, leave that one alone, but all the others you can eat uh, out of them. Now, a a smart fella would have gone and put a fence around that tree, right? And maybe that's what Adam should have done, is gone and put a fence around that tree and and that way uh, they wouldn't have gone up to it. But what happens? Lo and behold, here comes that old serpent coming up there, right? That serpent. And that's Satan. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And I want you to put a pin in that, in that word subtle. Okay, I want you to remember that word subtle because it's going to come back uh, to haunt us, if you will, uh, that word subtle is. And so here is, I, I firmly believe that by this time, and I don't know the exact time frames of, of how long it was from God creating everything and putting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden up to the point that we get to in chapter 3, verse 1. I don't know what the time frame is. I don't know when Satan decided that he wanted to be God instead of God, whether it was uh, uh, you know, before the creation of man or after the creation of man. During the creation account, we don't have... Uh, it, it explicitly saying to us, oh, and on day whatever, God created the angels, right? Because Satan is a fallen angel. We, we don't know when all that occurred. But I am firmly convinced but, but that by the time chapter 3, verse 1 comes around, Satan has fallen. And Satan has fallen and he comes up to Eve. He takes upon the, himself the form of a serpent. Now, does that surprise anybody that he would take upon himself the form of a serpent? I mean, the scriptures later on will tell us that he can appear as an angel of light. And if he can appear as an angel of light, it's no big deal for him to appear as a serpent uh, either. So, uh, so here Satan is. He comes uh, slithering up there as a, as a serpent, uh, although I'm not even convinced that he slithered at that point. Any, but that's a, we'll see that as we go forward. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he comes up to the woman, and it doesn't surprise Eve at all that an animal is talking to her. I want you to think about that too. It doesn't surprise Eve at all that an animal is talking to her. Maybe she is the original Dr. Doolittle, right? And so uh, this animal comes up to her and talks, and she just carries on a conversation with it, this serpent and, and Eve do. And so the serpent says to the woman, Yea, hath God said... Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So here Satan comes in and he asks Eve this question, and he is asking it under the pretense 
of clarifying just exactly what God has said. I want you to get that, that, that Satan has come in and he's clarifying. He's, he's asking a question with the alleged intent, with the outward observation would be to, for the intent of clarifying what God has said. Now, the New Testament tells us that we uh, understand Satan, that, that his devices are not a secret to us, that, that we understand how he operates. That's what the New Testament tells us. And how does he operate? He operated here with Eve exactly like he operated with Jesus in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus. And he operates with us the same today where he comes up and says, well, let's talk about what God really said and what God really meant. And let's let's parse this out and divide this up and, and figure this out exactly what God meant. And of course, in the way that Satan thinks is, how can we get around, what loopholes are there, right? What loopholes are there? Can we do an end run around the rules of God and say to God, well, we, we really haven't broken your rule because your rule was just right here and we went around it. Right? And that Satan works the same way today as he worked back then in the Garden of Eden, as he did in the wilderness with Jesus Christ, so does he today with you by saying, Did God really say that? And can't I justify this little end run around what God said? So so it does with, the, with Eve. Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And so here Eve knows the rule. Eve knows what the rule is. She is not ignorant of the law, even though we sometimes today will say ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? I go driving along and I'm not paying attention. I don't pay attention to what the speed limit sign is. And the, uh, the nice uh, law officer pulls me over and, uh, and asks, did I know I'm, I was uh, speeding? And I say, no, sir, I didn't know I was speeding. I don't know what the speed limit is. And he's going to say, oh, well, since you don't know what the speed limit is, you just go ahead and go on and don't worry about it. I'm sorry to have bothered you. That's not what he's going to say, right? He's going to say, you're charged with knowing. So ignorance of the law is no excuse. But even if it was, Eve knew the law. Adam knew the law. We can eat of any tree in the garden. And every tree was good to eat from because God, because why? Because the, the creation of God was perfect. We've already established about the perfection of creation, where God looked back and said, not only is it good, it is very good, right? And, and hence his way of saying it's, it's perfect. There's nothing uh, lacking in it whatsoever. Every nutrient that they would have needed was contained in the fruits of the trees in the garden. Every vitamin that they needed was being provided for them. There was nothing that would have been lacking. They didn't have to have the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to survive. God was not withholding something from them that they needed. And God does not today withhold something from you that you need. God provides you with everything that you need. God doesn't withhold it. And God says, there's one rule, don't eat of that tree. Now, years later, we come down uh, the, uh, the, the path in the wilderness, and God gives ten commandments, right? And so we, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the ten commandments on the two tablets of stone, comes back down, and, you know, obviously he's the first one who downloaded something to a tablet from the cloud. And... And he comes down and immediately breaks all Ten Commandments all at one time, right? By throwing them on the ground and it literally breaks. So he has to go back up and get a second version, a second copy. says the same thing. God gives him a second, uh, a second chance. 
And I'm glad that we serve a God of second chances, right? And so uh, he comes back down with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And uh, I think I've probably shared with you here somewhere in the last half my life years. Y'all are going to figure out how much half my life is before with the weekend's up, right? And, and uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite little cartoon panels is Frank and Ernest. Y'all, if you remember it all, Frank and Ernest, these, these two guys, and, and they're talking. They're standing in front of, of a bunch of law books, you know, about wretched lawyers, yeah. And so they're standing in front of all these law books, and, and the picture is it just goes on and on and on, and we know how the laws go on and on and on, right? And, the, and one of them turns to the other and says, and just think, it all started with just Ten Commandments. <laughs> well, really, it all started with one. And that is, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this tree has a long name, but it's very important to understand the name of this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So keep that in mind as well. We're sticking a lot of pins in things uh, this, this evening, right? So the woman says, you know, we can eat of any tree, but there's one tree. We can't eat of it lest we die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. I mean, I can just imagine that he's, he's trying to get Eve to think this way. He's trying to get Eve to think, well, you know, you know God is good. You know that God wants the best for you. And you know that if there is anything good that's out there, that God would not withhold that good thing from you. You're not surely going to die. Maybe you misunderstood what he was talking about. Maybe you misunderstood what the commandment was. Maybe, maybe you didn't get it just right. You're not surely going to die. God wouldn't do that to you. I mean, after all, you're created in His image according to His likeness. Surely God wouldn't do that to you. And that's the way Satan approaches us today when there's something that seems to be good and maybe actually is good in and of itself, but God has said, it may be good, but I'm withholding it from you for your good. And Satan comes along and says, oh, but it's good. It's good for you. And surely you misunderstood God. God wouldn't withhold something from you that's good. And that's how Satan operates. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And now Satan turns it a little bit and says, Ah, Maybe the real reason God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit is because He knows when you eat of that fruit, you'll be up here just like Him. You'll be a God. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's not that God is doing this for your benefit. Maybe God is doing it for His benefit. And you see how Satan twisted just a little bit there? Oh, maybe that's the, the, the issue. God doesn't want you to be like He is. He wants to keep you down. He wants to oppress you. He wants to hold you back. And isn't that exactly what the world tells you today in terms of being a Christian? Oh God, being a Christian means you're, you're held down, you're held back, you're oppressed. It means you can't do anything or have anything fun. And that's what the world, that's what Satan continues to tell us. God doesn't, God knows that it's good. He just doesn't want you to have it because then you'll be like a God. And so many people chase after that illusion of being like a God. And what happens? Eve says, You know, Satan, what you say, it's making some sense. It sounds logical. It sounds like it, 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 it could be, really be the case. I just must be all confused. I guess God really does want me to have that fruit. And so she takes the bite, right? She takes the bite. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, I'm going to pause right there and remind you of a verse in 1 John chapter 2, I believe it's verse 16, that talks about the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I want you to see that all three of those elements are right here in what is described about Eve. The lust of the, uh, of the, uh, 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 of the flesh, it's good for food. It's good for food. It's good for the body. It's, it's good to nourish me. It's good for the flesh, the lust of the flesh. And it's pleasant to the eyes. It looks real good, right? It looks real good. It's, it's, it's not like a jackfruit or something, you know. I mean, it, it looks good. The lust of the eyes. And it's desirable to make me wise. The pride of life. Right there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right here at the very beginning is repeated in the uh, next of the next of the next of the next of the last ver- Bible, uh, uh, book of the Bible in 1 John. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, and Eve falls subject to it right here. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And you go back and study the uh, Hebrew in this, you'll, you'll gain an understanding about how that, uh, that this whole scene was them standing right beside the tree. They could have gone anywhere in the garden. And where did they go? To the tree, that they, the one place they shouldn't go. Anybody ever have any kids like that? They could play anywhere they wanted to and the one place they... When I was growing up, my, my mother, the, the, our house was such that we had a formal dining area. And you didn't have to walk through the formal dining area to get to the kitchen, to get to the door, to get to anywhere. I mean, it was stuck in a corner, and, and you didn't have to go in there. And she warned us, don't you boys go in there. And you know what we did? We went in there. Now, that was back in the time of shag carpeting, and you couldn't hide your tracks. <laughs> it wasn't like Berber or something, you know, where you... No, you, I mean, it was very obvious. My mother used to, you don't have to edit this, brother. My mother used to rake the carpet. Did any of y'all ever have to rake your carpet? Anyway, the one place that they shouldn't have gone is the one place they went to. And as they're there, they eat the fruit. And it says, when they did that, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, this fruit was able to make them wise. It was desired to make them wise. And Satan twisted it a little bit and said, you'll be just like God. You'll know good and evil just like God. Let me point out that Adam and Eve, before this event occurred, were not ignorant. They knew some things. They knew some things. They knew God. They knew that that God had given them all these wonderful blessings uh, there in the garden. They knew that it was God that created them. They knew that God, uh, they they walked with God in the garden. They, They talked with Him. Right? They knew all of this good stuff. You know what they didn't know? They didn't know evil. That's what they didn't know. They didn't know evil. They knew good. They didn't know evil. So when they took that fruit and their eyes were opened, Not only did they then know good, but they also knew evil. Now that doesn't sound like a very good bargain, does it? You eat this fruit and you'll know evil. If it were put that way, I would say, no thank you. I'd rather have a chicken fried steak. Y'all know what chicken fried steak is? Okay. You know, 
I'd, I'd say, no, that's a bad bargain. I won't have it. But that's exactly what they got in the bargain was to know evil. They already knew good. All they got was to know evil. And their eyes were opened. Well, obviously their eyes were already open. They could obviously already see from a natural standpoint. So what this is referring to is not natural sight. This is referring to an understanding. They now, their eyes were open. They had an understanding of things. And they understood good and evil at this point. And they knew that they were naked. Now, if you go back to the Hebrew and you look at that word naked, it'll, it'll lead you to an understanding of, of, a, of, a, of a thought. And, and the Hebrew language, this is not exactly the right way to put it, but, I, but it's the best I can do. The Hebrew language is a very pictorial language in the sense of it, it gives these big, it gives concepts and ideas more so than the English language, which we very, be, try to be very precise with, right? And, and we, we don't just call uh, uh, the, you know, the, the walls white. They have to be eggshell or something like that, right? They, they have to be whatever other colors. You know, you, you can't just be uh, uh, purple or whatever. You have to be fuchsia or whatever. You know, I mean, it, 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 we have to be very specific. But the Hebrew language is not like that. It gives a concept. And the concept is... And that's why it's so important in, in understanding the context because when, when the language is not precise, you really have to understand the context to understand what's, what's being communicated. And the important thing is not so much the words as it is the communication. My daughter Ashton is in college and she, she writes these papers that I'm supposed to edit. And, and she goes and she writes these She's been reading, you know, books, since, I think, since she was about uh, uh, three months in the womb. And, and she, she, she knows all these words, right? And I'm just, uh, I'm just a simple caveman. You know, I don't know all your fancy words, but I'm supposed to edit them. So she sends them to me to edit, and, uh, and I don't know all of these big words. And she asked me, well, how was it? Does it make sense? Oh, absolutely, honey. <laughs> Made perfect sense. I guess I just admitted to lying right here in the pulpit, didn't I? <laughs> anyway, um, the, the important thing is not the words that are used, and this is what I want to tell her. Maybe you should let her listen to this message by the time. This is what I want to tell her. It's not the words you use. It's the message you communicate. That's the, that's the most important thing, is the message you communicate. Because if you use a bunch of big words, but nobody knows what you said, that's really like speaking in tongues, isn't it? There's no interpreter. So, what is the message being communicated? Well, this, this word that's translated as naked, it's a word that communicates an idea of being smooth, uh, as though you have no fur, right? Like a naked mole rat or something, you know. There's a cat out there that has no hair. It's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. You know, it gives this idea of being smooth. Now, when you think about being smooth, you think about Brother Steve in his teenage years, right? He was smooth. <laughs> we come over here half my life it's the first time he's ever said anything during one of my messages <laughs> mark this occasion right now this is going to be a great weekend I can tell he was smooth it also gives the idea of being crafty and I don't mean able to make things from lollipop sticks I mean being crafty as in being subtle Remember when I told you to stick a pin in subtle in verse 1? Now Satan was more subtle than any of the other things that God created. He was more subtle. And now we see that the eyes of Adam and Eve are open. They have an understanding and they know now 
that they are subtle, just like Satan. They were created in the image and in the likeness of God. And they have now exchanged that for being in the likeness of Satan. They're subtle. They're crafty. They're smooth. The pervasiveness of sin. Instead of looking like their father, they now look like their enemy instead. Well, they know good still as well as evil. And so now they are feeling ashamed and embarrassed. Where they thought they were going to be gods, they realize now that they are lower than a snake's belly. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They go try to play hide and seek with God. Well, you know that God knows everything. And Adam and Eve knew that God knows everything. But they still tried to hide. Why did they try to hide? Because they were ashamed. They were embarrassed. They knew what they had done was wrong. And sometimes in our lives, we try to hide from God, even though we know God knows everything. I'm going to hide this little part of my life from God. I'm going to stick it in a corner and cover it up with a towel and and God won't know about it. Now logically, I know that that's not right. I know that God knows everything. But I'm going to hide it anyway. And that's what what Adam and Eve try to do here. They hide themselves from God. And God comes up into the garden and He calls out to Adam and He says, Where art thou? And God knows where... Adam is. He knows where Adam is naturally, and he knows where Adam is spiritually as well. But he wants Adam to think about it. Adam, where do you find yourself now? Are you a god? No, you're hiding behind a tree, trying to keep away from me. Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. He's never experienced that before. Being afraid of God, he's never experienced it. And this is not the fear of God like we read about later on in Scripture where it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That means a reverence and a respect of God. He is afraid of God. Because... I was naked because now I am evil. Because now I'm evil. So I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were evil? Who told you that you were subtle? Have you perchance eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Where I told you not to eat? And I want you to look at the language in verse 11 of chapter 3. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? That first part where it says, hast thou eaten? The concept here, the communication here is, have you devoured it? Kind of like I did when that pizza finally got here tonight. And I went and got a piece and I devoured it. That's the the concept here. Have you devoured it? Have you consumed it? And it's used sometimes in the sense of burning something up. And you remember how that scripture talks about how that when, when that lust burns within us? Are you consumed by it? Were you so consumed by it? Did you devour it? Did it consume you and did you consume it? And the man said, 
and this is so classic, it's the woman's fault. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. Not only is it the woman's fault, it's also God's fault. It's the woman that you, God, gave to me. And God, if you'd have given me a better woman, things wouldn't have worked out this way. But it was that woman that you gave me. And so Adam blames Eve and God, right? She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So, so here's Eve. God says to her, The, the serpent has, has, has tricked me, he's beguiled me, and, and I ate of it. And so she blames the serpent. And then God turns to the serpent, you know, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. Blaming someone else. That's something they didn't have to do because there was no sin. And the Lord God said unto the servant, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now that was a double curse right there, wasn't it? And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou give it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt uh, eat the herb of the field. Uh, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, until thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt thou return. And, and through these curses we see the absolute pervasiveness of sin. The ground is cursed because of it. The dust of the earth is cursed because of it. Now let me ask you, what are your sweet little babies made out of? The dust of the earth. Because dust they are and to dust they will return. And when God cursed the ground, the dust of the earth, that is the pervasiveness of sin. That is total depravity right there. Total depravity. Nothing else will come forth but what it is depraved, but what it is evil, but what it is subtle, but what it is naked. That's the pervasiveness of sin. Now, if that were the end of the story, that would be hard to live with because you couldn't live with it. You'd only die from it. And I know I'm, I'm going a little over time, but if y'all hang with me for just a little bit longer, you know how somebody can paint a, a dark, a picture of a, of a dark night and, and trees, you know, maybe it's snowy or something on there, you know, and you can see this little house or this little cabin in, in, in the background, just barely make out the, the, the shape of it, you know, and the, and the form of it. You, you can kind of tell it's there, but it's all dark and everything. And then the artist takes his little brush, little bitty brush, dips it in the yellow paint, and right there in the window of that little cottage, in that deep, dark forest, paints a little bitty light. Just one little speck there. And now you've got this big, dark picture, and this one little speck of yellow that represents light and your eye is drawn to that little bitty spot of, it's not even true light, it's just yellow paint. But your eye is drawn to, it, it pops out at you, doesn't it? And have you ever gone shopping for a diamond? And as you're shopping for a diamond and you want the, the best diamond, you, know, you want the prettiest one, the one that sparkles the best. And so what do they do? They don't pull out a, a white sheet of paper and lay it down there, do they? What do they pull out? 
a black cloth. And they lay that diamond right there, that sparkly diamond right there in the black cloth. The protovangelium is that diamond in the dark cloth. It's that light in the dark place. The protovangelium is. Did y'all catch it when we read right past it? Did you catch it? It's there in verse 15. God says to, to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And here it comes. Here comes that, that speck of light. Here it comes in that dark place. There is nothing but a pervasiveness of sin, nothing but darkness all around. And God says, boom, there's that little speck of light. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. It shall bruise thy head. You may bruise his heel, but it shall bruise thy head. And with that one little speck of yellow, God gives to us the very first message of salvation. The very first message of hope. The protoevangelium. The promise of salvation. Adam and Eve didn't understand. They, they, we have centuries, even millennia of time behind us where, where understanding this message has been built. It's been built up through time. It's been built up through lives of people. It's been built up through the messages of the prophets and of the gospels. It's been built up through the proclamation by preachers. It's been built up by God in your own heart. And it's been built up and built up and built up. But Adam and Eve, they didn't really understand. They didn't understand the full impact of that little speck of yellow on that dark canvas. Hope is coming. Victory is coming. Salvation is coming. I want you to quickly, let's just quickly go through these things. I want to give you seven signs here. Seven signs of the protoevangelium. Because when God said... There's somebody coming. Adam and Eve started looking for somebody to come. And they were given seven indications right here in this verse. In this little bitty verse, seven indications of what to look for. The first was, it, it was going to be somebody that came from the woman, right? Right? I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's going to be somebody... You know that at this point, Eve had not experienced birth. Neither her own nor a child's. There was no such thing at this point. Remember when I said God created light before He created the sun? God created children before He created anything else. Before the foundation of the world. Right? It's going to come of the woman. It's going to be born of woman. Whatever born means, it's going to be born of woman. And not only that, it's going to be born without the intervention of man. Of a man. Going to be born without the intervention of a man. How do I know that? Because it says, and between thy seed and her seed. Now, without getting into any details, seed is from the male, not the female. But here God says, from her seed. It's going to be born without the intervention of a man. What does that sound like? It sounds like a virgin birth to me. It's also going to be a male child. And this is nothing against the females. We, now, 
ladies, sisters, we, we know that y'all are much smarter than we are. We already know that. So this is not about a superior thing, but God just said it's going to be a male because it says, thou shalt bruise his heel. Now if you go back and study the Hebrew, you'll understand that this whole thing is, is in the masculine context. That's why context is so important. It's in the masculine context. We also know that this male child that's going to be born of a woman without the intervention of a man is going to be hated by Satan. I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. There's going to be hatred. Satan is going to hate. And those who belong to Satan, and I, we definitely don't have the time to get into the whole historical two-seed argument, right? Uh, and it's not that Satan created anybody, but between the, those who are not the elect, those who are Satan's, and between this male child, there's going to be enmity. And between the seed, the children of God. God had one begotten child, right? And the rest of us were adopted into the family of God. And, and uh, Satan has no begotten children. And everybody that's in his family is also adopted in, if you will. So, so don't let that throw you. It's the seed. And so there's going to be hatred by Satan. There's going to be hatred by Satan's people, Satan's seed. There's also going to be suffering. Thou shalt bruise his heel. This male child that's coming forth is going to suffer as well. That's part of the protoevangelium. That's part of the, of the picture. That's part of what's going to happen. There's going to be suffering. And we know that Jesus suffered, right? But it also says He's going to bruise the serpent's head. Now, it's important to understand the heel and the head, right? I mean, we know the difference between the heel and the head. And, and when saying that He's going to bruise His heel means He's going to suffer, but He's not going to be overcome. That's the symbology there. That's the, uh, the metaphorical symbology. But when it says that he is going to bruise the head, that's an indication of victory over Satan. And so the seventh sign is, is that he is going to be victorious. Victorious. We went from a perfect creation where everything was just exactly right and we were created in the very image of God uh, according to, 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 uh, to His likeness. And then we saw that the pervasiveness of sin was so rampant that we are no longer like our Heavenly Father. But then comes that beautiful message that very first message of the good news of salvation, like a light in the dark place, like a diamond on the black cloth, God says, but there's hope. But there's hope. But there's hope. I'm sure I'm glad we have the evangelium, And I'm so glad that we know more about it. I'm glad that it didn't stay as a prototype, if you will but that it has been explained and expounded and it has been revealed unto us by God in ways that we now understand that it has been fulfilled. Because there was a male child that came forth without the intervention of a man that was born of a woman and that Satan hated him and that Satan's minions hate him and that Satan's people hate him still today. And that he suffered, but that he was victorious. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless you. We're glad you
you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. 